talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is manning the board. Willerskin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Ontario Liberal leader announced, if elected, he would ban all handguns. Wait, didn't Prime Minister Justin Trudeau say the same thing during his campaigns? Here's Scott Thompson. He's a cheeky boy. He's a cheeky boy. Monk fans. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber back at the station behind the board and in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Lots of stuff going on today. Inflation rate. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Uh, 6.7%. Highest in 31 years. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get email from people saying we're having a hard time. And you know, once that start ha- starts happening, uh, it, it's happening, the, it's happening around the kitchen tables of the hammer and everywhere else in the country. Uh, also, uh, what else we, oh, Moderna, uh, they're working on an updated booster. Going to talk about that a little later. Uh, Uber lifting its mask mandates and, uh, Canadians sending more, uh, military aid to, uh, Ukraine, but Sunwing issues, man, these have been going on forever. Uh, it appears as people are, uh, trying to get out of Dodge and, and get back into the skies and do some vacationing. Uh, but, uh, Sunwing having major issues with, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, administration systems, which get you on and off the plane. Obviously, they're all, uh, on a network computerized with a third party company, which in turn had been hacked. So to tell us sort of what happened, uh, John Graddock is with us. A little clip right here. Uh, he's a professor of aviation at McGill University on what is happening with Sunwing. And my, I think it's like we're into the third day now. Maybe unusual for Canadian carriers and for Sunwing, but this is part of the part of you know working in a connected world in 2022. Um, we are more and more dependent on technology, on computers, on handheld devices a cyber breach, which means that somebody hacked into Airline Choices Computer, who's the service provider for our friends at Sunwing. The lesson learned for the airline industry, particularly, and these guys who have third-party providers, is always have a plan B and a plan C, and and then back up your data and make sure that you can cut these guys off You know, at the moment that you find out you've been hacked. So there you have it, um, Professor of Aviation, McGill University, John Graddock, trying to explain what happened, and you know, all part of the reservation system. And I, I think it's like back; it's been like this for the since about the 1970s, late 1970s, when they started doing all of this and automating it uh, and getting it out of uh, of staff's hands and such, and then had to go back to a manual form in order to get this done. And uh, it's just been dragging on for days. So uh, unfortunately, um, those that are were planning vacations, you know. I saw a couple on the news last night and you know they're heading down for a wedding and then all of a sudden you got to wait two days in the airport and not sure if that's going to happen uh, and you'll eventually get on a flight so very very frustrating for a lot of uh, travelers uh, you know caught up in the Sunwing web so to speak uh, but again just another example of how uh, companies have to protect themselves against this sort of cyber breach against this sort of hack which uh, in this case wasn't Sunwing directly but the company they farm out the reservation 
communications uh, systems too. So uh, obviously uh, lots to talk about moving forward uh, as far as Sunwing and how they are going to compensate people and uh, fix the situation they have. Also, uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister announcing today more heavy artillery heading out to Ukraine. And you got to ask the question, why is this stuff like, what are we on now? Uh, day number 56? Why wasn't this stuff sent out in day five? Um, it's, it's pretty obvious it was needed, but here's what the Prime Minister had to say about what's going off to Ukraine. Their most recent ask was exactly for that, for heavy artillery. Uh, for uh, reasons of operational security, I can't go into the details uh, at this point on uh, how and what we're getting to them exactly, uh, but I can assure you we will have more to say in the coming days. But I can reassure Canadians that we are directly responding to uh, the top requests that the Ukrainians have given for assistance uh, in uh, this current phase of the war, which is uh, a, a redoubled efforts by uh, Russia uh, to take, uh, take Donbass, and therefore there is very specific equipment that Ukrainians need. All right, that's the Prime Minister a little earlier on today, uh, outselling the budget and talking about what we are delivering to Ukraine. We're going to talk to Christian Leprec about this because I think a lot of this is smoke and mirrors, uh, simply because Christian Leprec said on this show a week or two ago that our cupboards are bare. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to be sending them. Obviously, the, the Prime Minister, very vague for security reasons. I get that. Um, but at the, again, at the end of the day, uh, maybe if we had started sending this stuff, and I'm just not saying Canada, but other countries, including the United States, maybe on day six instead of day 56, where would we be today? So, you know, it's kind of like the sanctions. We keep giving them out little by little by little by little by little as Ukrainians by uh, little by little start, you know, are, are, are literally uh, uh, blown off the earth. So, you know, if we're going to get them crap, why don't we give it to them all at once and what they need as opposed to dragging this out uh, for 56 days? And these are questions that we will ask Christian Leprac coming up uh, on the show. Why not earlier? Are we late to this game? What is heavy artillery? What does that mean? Uh, because initially we were sending stuff like helmets and, and rifles and such. And do we have the stockpile to send? What sort of stuff are we sending? Now, we know that the U.S. is also sending in more aid, whether we're peggybacking on them uh, or, or the, the, these two, uh, uh, these two uh, obviously, plans are, are going to work in unison. Not sure. But again, you know, how much suffering do we have to see in Ukraine before we send them the whole nine yards, to use an old World War II expression? Like, you know, I mean, how, how, oh, no, 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 now they need a little bit more. Oh, they need more than this. Yep, now they'll need more than helmets. I mean, come on. Now, obviously, there's logistics involved in sending all of this. It's not like, you know, ordering an Amazon package, per se. Uh, but these are the questions we're going to be asking Christian Leprat coming up a little later on today. What is involved in all of this? And what does heavy uh, artillery actually mean? Legendary Hamiltonian guitarist, Spendis, uh, grew up here, uh, has passed away at the age of 70. To talk more about all of this, old friend, it's been a while, Graham Rockingham joining us, former music journalist and retired from the Hamilton's Spectator and with us now. Graham, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. well I'm sitting outside on a park bench outside the fish cage. Coots Paradise. Beautiful day. <laughs> what more should you be doing when you're retired? Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying. I'm watching the cormorants gobble up all the catfish here. 
<laughs> perfect, perfect. All right, so uh, Jerry Doucette, this song, one of those songs that, uh, boy, as soon as you hear it, you recognize it. Talk about the success of this song. Well, it was, uh, it was a, in the late 70s, 77, I guess he recorded that, released it. That you couldn't. It's like you couldn't be anywhere near, uh, where there was a radio without hearing it. It was huge. It was uh, uh, Billboard Hot 100, uh, North America. Uh, debut album uh, by the same title with sold over 100,000, as did his follow-up album, uh, The Deuce is Loose, another platinum seller. Yeah, he was uh, he was a big deal for, for a while. And uh, he was born in Montreal, but uh, his family moved to Hamilton uh, when he was about four. And they lived, he was raised, grew up uh, uh, Maine and Parkdale area in the East End. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was a prodigy. I mean, he was playing, his dad bought him a guitar when he was six years old. And by the time he was a teenager, in his early teens, he was playing in a professional band called the Reefers, playing uh, uh, bowling alleys and high schools all around the, uh, the area. So he, he insisted that the band was named after the truck and not the reefer match. <laughs> I'm sure, especially at that period of time. Yeah. Uh, tell us the story. Tell us the story about this song, because apparently this happened in the house, and you know the phrase "Mama well, let him play." It's, it, uh, he told me this story a while back, is uh, when he was on a visit back to Hamilton. This would have been 2016, and uh, the story goes. I mean, his dad bought him a guitar. His dad was working shift work at uh, Stelco, and 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 Jerry just played it all the time. And his mother would say, "Your dad's trying to sleep. Stop! Stop! Stop!" <laughs> and one day, you know, Jerry's about eight years old. Dad comes out of the bedroom and says, "Mama, let him play." Now, <laughs> uh, that just stuck in Jerry's mind for years. And uh, Jerry resettled in the Vancouver area in the early 70s, playing with a, 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 a band called The Seeds of Time and uh, uh, Rocket Norton, too. But uh, when he was... And, and, and this image of his dad saying, Mama, let him play, just stuck with him. And he just said, that would be a great line for a song. And, mm. and then everything happened. And uh, he was on the Mushroom label which is now owned by True North Records in Waterdown, funny thing. Mm. And, uh, and, and yeah, the song took off, and he had good label support. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, he had those first two albums. I said he, I think he put out a total of five, but, of course, it was just as punk rock was moving in. Yeah, yeah. And, and just as New Wave was moving in. And all of a sudden, flashy guitar players weren't popular anymore, so he kind of faded out after that but he, he spent probably uh the last 50 years living in uh, the vancouver area and uh, uh and settled down in uh in delta just south of vancouver but uh, and he was still playing circuit right up till about three years ago he was still playing festivals and uh and, and gigs with local blues bands uh, out in western canada it just goes to show you when you get a great song and a great hook how that can stick Oh, absolutely. And he was a brilliant guitar player. As I said, he was a prodigy. I mean, there was, it, it, Hamilton was known for the quality of their guitars. And, uh, and 
you talk to people like Earl Johnson, also from the East End of uh, uh, of Hamilton, who's still playing at the age of seventy, and he he formed Moxie, and he was inspired watching oh. this young kid his age up on the stage with the older guys playing rock and roll, and, and he just he 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 was quite something. He was a phenomenon for sure. And this all happening at a time when Canadian music was still really in its infancy. It was in its infancy. We did have, you know, Triumph was starting out, Matt Fletcher mm-hmm. was starting out, Rush was starting out. But that, I mean, he was, that one song hit it bigger than any of them, really. So, yeah. uh, and, and, then, and then, as I said, things changed. <laughs> Tastes changed. And, you know, when you think about it, uh, Graham, and you've covered this industry forever, um, you know, if you get three to five years out of something as a pop music, yeah. rock star, whatever, you've done well. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, he's had enough money to buy a house and raise a family. You're doing really well. And that's, he had a big family, lots of grandchildren. And he always, you know, he was always Hamiltonian. And it, it was great uh, a few years ago, as I said, uh, his old buddies uh, uh, got together and and brought him out here for uh, a big guitar jam at the Leander Boat Club, uh, and and it was a, it was a great night. I'll never forget that. And uh, and he was just he just loved it because he was you know reuniting with people he hadn't seen in decades, and 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 they mm. just it was like they just you know there was original guys from the Reefers there, and they and they just it was like no time had passed except when you looked at their. Well. <laughs> <laughs> or when you looked in the mirror, Graham. Uh, legendary Hamiltonian guitarist Jerry Doucette passed away at the age of 70 uh, in B.C. And, of course, Mama let him play uh, a staple, especially on classic rock radio. Graham Rockingham, you got more stories than I can shake a stick at. Thanks for taking the time to join, uh, for, to join us. Very much appreciated. And enjoy the park. I will. Always a pleasure, Scott. Take care. You too, Graham Rockingham, uh, Hamilton Spectator, music journalist, uh, and a boatload of Hamilton stories uh, regarding the music industry. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We have been talking uh, at length, it seems, uh, well, certainly since, I guess even before COVID, uh, but now as many things, the global pandemic has uh, exacerbated issues, exposed weak links per se. And another great example of that is uh, the housing market. And we've seen the prices of houses go uh, through the roof as uh, people want to get out, want more space, don't want to be stacked up like cordwood. And obviously a low supply, a combination of low interest rates, all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, if you have enough houses, even things like low interest rates and such uh, really aren't a factor. It starts and ends with supply, really, when you think about it. The rest just uh, contributes to it. So, uh, you know, it's certainly nothing new for people uh, that have bought rental properties or such. Uh, you know, we hear about it on uh, Planning Your Financial Future here on the weekends. Uh, with Don Fox and, and, you know, some people have, have, uh, opted to go that route. Others invest in other things, mutual funds, what have you, uh, for, you know, to pad your retirement to, to hopefully have a, a nest egg of some sort. But obviously with real, uh, real estate prices going through the roof, uh, more and more, uh, people, average Canadians are buying more than one home. Um, and, and keeping those as investments or rental properties. This is over and above recreational. This is not cottages and, 
and trailers and such like that. This is, you know, one or two homes that will generate revenue and, and pad your nest egg. And the reason people are going there is because you're getting a better return in some cases, uh, with real estate than you are with the stock market because of the low supply and the high demand. Uh, and again, nothing new here, but now information is coming out that at least 65 Canadian members of Parliament hold rental or investment real estate assets, uh, according to their uh, filings with the Federal Conflict of Interest uh, Commissioner. And this could uh, include everything from uh, having rental properties or investments, real estate holdings, uh, vacant land, uh, recreational properties, income from uh, or significant interest in real estate brokerages or even uh, holding companies to to uh, to keep these all in, in line. So uh, there's one thing to buy a cottage is another thing to uh, plan your your retirement around this sort of thing. And obviously, with the demand and the low supply, uh, housing prices continue to go through the roof. To talk more about all of this, Amanda Conley is with us, senior political reporter for Global News. She is with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, it appears there's nothing illegal here. They're not doing anything wrong. But boy, the optics aren't looking good when obviously this is a major issue for Canadians. Yeah, and that really is an important point here. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing illegal. There's no rules being, being broken. No one here certainly is demonizing uh, landlords, the, the real estate experts that I spoke to. The question really is, what kind of a mirror does this reflect when the government is talking about the financialization of real estate, of investors driving up prices? Well, what are they and their own caucus and their own colleagues in Parliament actually doing as well? And so what we know now is that at least 65 members of Parliament as you were saying there, hold rental or investment real estate. That number, though, actually likely much higher because 91 MPs haven't fully completed their disclosure process yet with the Ethics Commissioner's Office. So certainly watch for those numbers to likely rise. Uh, Many have said, you know, well, you know, lots of people have cottages and such, but there's sort of a difference here between owning a cottage and then having several rental properties. Is that the difference here? Yeah, that really is the question based on the conversations I've had with uh, with real estate experts here, with people who are studying kind of the demographics and economics here in Canada and how that affects um, home prices and people's ability to have that stable financial footing that they need. You know, of course, we have millennials, Gen Z, a lot of uh, new Canadians as well looking to start families to have kind of a stable, uh, stable, stable life setting here. And of course, a home is often the first thing that they look to to get that. Well, of course, that's becoming harder and harder for so many people to actually get because we're seeing this kind of growing role here of investors in the real estate market. Now, often when we talk about investors, the government talks about foreign investors, about people coming in, parking money here as well. But we know from Bank of Canada data uh, as recently as December 2021 that actually mainly domestic buyers have outpaced first-time home buyers during yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic. So certainly a significant role for people domestically here as well. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, it's not just politicians. Lots of people are doing it as they find that's a better return for them than than other uh, more. Well, I guess housing is traditional, too. Uh, but that being said, how do you correct this? I mean, is there any where, where do you think this story is going to go, Amanda? I think that's 
the really tricky question right now. And I think, um, you know, one one of the, the reasons that ethics disclosures and, and again, the, the public registry, this is all public information, um, are, are important is because Canadians have expectations of the people that they elect to power. They have expectations that when political parties of whatever stripe um, they, they may vote for say, we're going to work for you to improve housing, to improve the cost of living, the cost of homes, to help you be able to buy a home. More Very often that that it, for a lot of people, means bringing down prices, making housing more affordable. But, of course, there's a question there. If MPs have skin in the game, are they going to be willing to do that? And that's really mm. the accountability issue here. That And the transparency and openness, of course, that Canadians and, and voters have a right to. And, and obviously, the message that this is sending here is, if you want to make money, this is how you do it. And people who've never even thought of owning rental properties before are now talking about it. Like, this, this is just now becoming an option, and this sort of information kind of sends that message, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, you see it on, on social media, too, but I can tell you, you know, I'm a, a millennial myself. You see it kind of all over, um, you know, Instagram and, and TikTok and things like that. There's been a huge proliferation in the number of, of real estate agents and personal finance people who are working kind of on those spaces. And one of the things they're mm-hmm. saying very, very often is buy a home, get into the market. Prices are going up, like do, you know, buy a rental, have duplexes, all this stuff. And so you have a lot of people who are really, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, looking for um, more opportunities, more stable income, things like that. Because, of course, we live in a time of real uncertainty right now. It's really tough for a lot of people who are looking for, for ways to get ahead. And rental income investment properties often are one of the things, like you were saying, that financial experts are recommending to clients and to people to really get that stable financial footing. The challenge is, of course, if everyone wants that and, and you have real issues in terms of equality and getting to that, that goal, um, what is the solution? I don't think anyone has a kind of silver bullet answer to that right now. Yeah, it's it's certainly not. There's no real short-term solution, that's for sure. Do you think we'll see some sort of new rules coming, or is there any chatter of new rules that can eliminate this? But you know, how do you do that? You know, I think my meaning eliminating this for MPs. <laughs> you know, it's a tricky question because, of course, you you have uh, kind of potentially parallels there, and you know, you often talk about um, can MPs own, for example, stocks in things that they are. Uh, directly involved in in regulating and typically the answer is you're going to have a lot of restrictions on that kind of thing oftentimes it has to be put in things like a blind trust you hear that phrasing a lot in in politics it's not the same thing really with real estate and there may there there could be a question there to look into further about whether that should be an option again because of how common uh, investing in real estate has become in canada over recent years and because of the the amount of people who are who are mps who are doing this as well you, it, it could be a real challenge in, in, in kind of getting to a, um, a middle ground there in terms of what actions people might want to see from their representatives and what actions those representatives might be willing to impose on themselves. Fascinating story as uh, people look to invest in housing as opposed to more traditional means and politicians at the head of the line. Uh, fascinating story, Amanda. Amanda Connolly, senior political reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching more t- uh, on Global Tonight. Thank you, Amanda. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
Here we are uh, slowly uh, coming out from uh, wherever we've been hiding for the last two years uh, during this global pandemic. And, and we know that our life changed during that time. Uh, things like uh, exercise equipment. Remember the Peloton bike? That, the, their shares were going through the roof. Uh, now since have subsided. And streaming services such as Netflix. My goodness, there was a period there where we had nothing else to do except watch. Uh, and obviously, uh, they enjoyed uh, uh, the benefit of that. However, Netflix now uh, Netflix is now looking at adding commercials and cracking down on password sharing because they're not doing as well as they once were, uh, which is fascinating considering uh, some of the great stuff that they've had over time. But what is the reasoning behind this? Is it programming? Is it ads? Is it what? Let's bring in Robert Thompson, trustee professor of television, radio, and film director of the Blyer Center for television and pop culture at Syracuse University and with us now Robert thanks for the time I hope you're well I'm doing very well how about you so far so good so Robert your thoughts on where Netflix is at this point of the uh, pandemic we know at the early stages uh, obviously consumption was up what's happened now as we're towards the end of this hopefully well, right now, uh, this minute, uh, things are uh, not looking too well. Uh, last night, their uh, stock uh, was down more than 25% uh, by the end of the afternoon. Uh, they have, in fact, begun to lose subscribers, uh, 200,000 in the first quarter, and they're expecting the loss of another 2 million in the second quarter. So these are uh, not the kinds of news we're used to with Netflix, which uh, at least since 2013, when uh, Orange is the New Black and House of Cards came out and everybody had to subscribe, uh, now we're seeing that flatten out. I'm not sure how much to blame this on the fact that the pandemic is uh, moving into a different phase. I've got a sneaking suspicion that the explosion in streaming was going to reach some kind of equilibrium anyway. And of mm. course, when Netflix first got started, it didn't have nearly the competition that it does now. It still had friends. It still had the office. Uh, uh, neither of those, which are, were its biggest draws, uh, are with them anymore. And even in the last couple of years, we've seen the introduction of HBO Max, Peacock, a bunch of other places. And eventually, people are only going to be able to afford so many uh, subscriptions, and Netflix is going to have to come up with other strategies, which brings us to some of the other things you were talking about. So uh, this is less to do with changing behavior and more about competition for quality programming. Who's got the best shows? Well, I think it's a combination of, uh, I mean, some of it's got to do with changing behavior. Uh, yeah. Some of it's got to do with the fact that there just are a lot more places where people can uh, stream video and of course uh, the idea of you've got to have shows on there that people can't live without or they'll move their subscription dollars elsewhere so one of the things that netflix plans to do is to continue to spend money on making their bench so deep and their programming so vast that everybody's got something on there that they can't uh, they can't be without uh, but they've got some other plans in mind as well. One is, uh, and they've come right out and said this, they've got all these people out there who are sharing passwords. 
They mm. see those people that are using other people's passwords as a potential new subscribers. If they could get them to quit sharing passwords uh, and those people still wanted to watch Netflix, they'd have to become subscribers themselves. Wouldn't, well, there, wouldn't, their competition, the wouldn't, wouldn't their competition also be facing the same sort of problem, Robert? I mean, there'd be, you know, I mean there's always been password uh, fatigue in that respect. Wouldn't, all, wouldn't all, all the competitors be facing that? Yes, and I think all of the streaming services are addressing this issue as well. Which one takes the step first and how they do it is all kind of, uh, you know, looking at what the competitors are doing. Uh, but in the end, yes, they see one of the ways when you flatten out growth, you've got to come up with uh, when everybody who's going to subscribe is subscribing, you have to come up with new ways of growing. One is international markets, and even those are beginning to slow down. Uh, and the other is to get all those people who aren't subscribers but still like the service to, in fact, pay for the service. So, yeah, that's not just a Netflix issue. Netflix's other uh, plan, which has got a lot of people clutching their pearls, is the idea of uh, launching an ad-supported uh, branch of their service. Uh, one of the nice things about Netflix is you never had to sit through uh, ads. And even mm. back in the old days of the DVR or the uh, even the VCR, for that matter, you could zip through ads. You can't do that when you're uh, when you're streaming. Now, at this point, it simply says that Netflix might offer a commercial tier, which would be cheaper. So you could still get the Netflix uh, without the commercials, but you could get a discount if you took the commercials. Hulu has a situation uh, like this. Peacock has a situation uh, like this. Um, if that, though, means that simply everybody will pay the same for Netflix and you'll get a di discount if you want ads, uh, don't be so optimistic because, as we all know, Netflix subscription service without the ads continues to go up. Uh, as will all the other tiers of all the other places as well. Uh, if the law of gravity is what goes up must come down, the opposite is true for cable and streaming services. <laughs> what goes up will continue to go up. Wow. Fascinating conversation of what uh, the new streaming services, the new template will look like moving forward. Robert Thompson with us, trustee professor of television, radio and film, director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Robert, fascinating discussion as always. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. On the phone, the one, the only uh, former anchor news person at chml ted michaels is with us oh and i forgot to include newsroom dj uh yes. ted michaels is with us good afternoon ted it's great to talk to you well how are you what was that dreadful not the last one what was that dreadful song with the english accent that was played in the bumper music coming please uh, you know that's I chicago to to this. that was chicago no the, the one prior to the monks johnny b rotten are you kidding me no, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's come on. Start doing I mean, the pogo tag. I, mean, I I stop at the song. I want to be sedated. That that's as far as punk rock uh, as I go. Yeah, it was a little after that. Yeah, a little yeah. after that. So uh, anyway, so we're uh, Will and I and we're we're chatting about the show uh, today, yeah. and all of a sudden he forwards me your thing on social media, yeah. and you've got yourself uh, uh, an air fryer. You're taking yeah. pictures of yourself with your air fryer on social media, Ted. Well, you know, <laughs> I didn't know it's all a whole thing. Clearly, you're at the bottom of your uh, list when it comes to uh, show content. But no, oh, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Guess who's here? Guess who's here and also has an air fryer? Hi, Ted. You're How are you? 
Eileen, so great to talk to you. Uh, it's been a long time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I miss hearing your voice. Well, thank you. You know, I, I kind of miss everybody. It's been uh, a little tougher getting used to retirement than I thought it would be. But uh, The know, whole place has gone to hell in a handbasket since you left, Ted. It's just well, it's terrible. Uh, I, like, I miss everybody. Like, <laughs> that's the thing. If people ask me, what do you miss? It's not so much the day-by-day stuff. It's, no. you, you know what it's like. You the miss people, the people, right? You miss the, you know, the joviality, the, you know the comments that probably people can't repeat on air, but that's what I miss. So anyway, we got, a little while ago, an air fryer. Eileen's got, got an air fryer, too. That's why I brought her in. She was so excited well, to hear that you got an air fryer. Well, yeah. I hope you love it as much my, as I do, our, our, Ted. And Well, yeah, and our, our eldest daughter gave us a tutorial on that today. Now, understand that this is the type of guy who I get really bored when it comes to cooking. I, I mean, I do toast, <laughs> I do cereal. All barbecue stuff on occasion, but anyway. And then she sat down and explained the way that the potatoes go in, which I, you know, sliced in half. I did a good job of that. I thought I didn't cut myself. And then we have pork chops as well. And the way it's done, it's like you put it in there, you know, you set the timer, 20 minutes or whatever, and it's done. And the great thing, listen to me, I feel like I should go to the shopping network. You sound like my wife. I love it. And, and, but you don't have to open up the oven and put your, you know, the, the oven mitts on and take the thing and, you know, see if it's It's 20 minutes and it's done. It saves on, on the heat of the kitchen. And uh, I tweeted the finished product, the pork chops and, and potatoes. And I'm impressed. So it's like, you know what? I may start cooking. We have steaks in the freezer that I may try tomorrow night. So this is your first venture with the air fryer? Yes, yes. It's I know, not this is, this is Ted proof. <laughs> Ted proof. I know. Not only does it take like mere minutes, but it really tastes great too. It does. Like, yeah, like I, I sampled a couple of the potatoes and took a small bite of the uh, pork chop, and you know what? It's not bad. You know, so what's for dinner good, tonight, so, Ted? So, We're coming over <laughs> after the show. <laughs> and and you said you missed us, so we're all coming over for dinner, Ted. What are we having? <laughs> Let me look in the freezer. I am on a pension now, so I've got to be careful how I spend my money. <laughs> so any plans for tonight? Are you do, using it tonight, too? Have you taken over the kitchen? Uh, well, no, it, it's done. Uh, the uh, pork chops, potatoes uh, are done. We're just going to um, clean off the, the air fryer, put it away, and maybe fire it up uh, again tomorrow. Who knows? Like, there you go. Like, this, is somebody who, this is somebody who is, you know, like I mentioned, I get very bored when it comes to cooking. Because I just don't have the patience, and you know, we're in a situation where my wife mercifully did most of the cooking, thank God. But now it's like, you know what? I can do this, you know. Um, so really, it's for her, not you. Well, share yeah, recipes, I can help, Ted. Help, help her. And I said, okay, you sit, tell me what to do. You want me to, you know, like yesterday, my my big adventure. Uh, I sliced the peppers on the homemade pizza. I felt quite good at myself. I didn't cut myself. <laughs> well, Eileen's going to send you some recipes. Yeah. Oh, excellent! Please do. <laughs> She's an old pro at this. Well, good. And and apparently on social media, I'm getting all these comments from from people. Apparently, it's a thing. I'm trending. So, <laughs> <laughs> good for you, Ted. Awesome. All right. Well, you have fun. The whole family's here gathered around. They're so excited that you've got an air fryer now. Well, and we'll all know, be over it, later. Well, I'm telling you, you know, it, it doesn't take much to to amuse me, and and this is good. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that.
Clearly us too. Thank you, Ted. Be well. Right, Great to talk care. to you again. And good luck. Bye. We'll be o- we'll be over about six thirty. Look, he's brushing me off already. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I think people understand that delivery of military equipment uh, in the context of an illegal war by Russia is something that we have to be a little bit careful about what we broadcast and publicize and what we're doing. Uh, But uh, in the coming days, I certainly hope to be able to share more about uh, what uh, is being sent and what was sent. I'm not sure we're looking for... uh makes and model numbers here and in, in you know the lingo of the day i don't think any of us would understand that um but why now we're uh, what 56 days into this why not send this stuff on day six uh canada sending heavy artillery to ukraine what does that mean what are we sending let's bring in christian leprac professor at both the royal military college of canada and queen's university fellow at the mcdonald laurier institute and with us now christian thank you for the time i hope you're uh, well yeah good afternoon scott always a pleasure so what are your thoughts on uh what the uh Prime Minister had to say today, and he couldn't say much because of the secretness. I don't think people were looking to find out exactly where and when we were sending things, just a bit more clarity. But I guess my first question is, what what are we sending, and why are we sending this now and not 50 days ago? Well, it appears that, uh, from what's been reported, that the government is looking at sending artillery pieces, um, uh, possibly the M777s that uh, we acquired from the United States uh, during the uh, Afghan campaign. Uh, The challenge with artillery pieces is it's not like we have surplus in Canada. So anything the government here decides to send um, is equipment that that the Kenyan Armed Forces will be short on. So the government will also need a plan to backfill and replace that equipment because uh, we're already pretty much at the minimum of, uh, of what the organization needs in order to continue to operate. The prime minister's, I think, secrecy. So there's two dimensions to that. One is that the Kremlin has really been trying to change the narrative, that this is not a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but it's a conflict between Russia and the West, Russia and NATO, Russia and the United States. So leaders have been more circumspect in terms of not trying to play into that narrative to bolster Putin's domestic standing. At the same time, the challenge with sending heavy equipment is there's a substantial component, I would have to think, of the liberal electoral base that is not on side with sending uh, heavy equipment. And so the prime minister's secrecy, so to speak, uh, may also be a political tactical move uh, so as not to irritate uh, electoral support for uh, his party among key constituencies. Why would we not just have sent the whole nine yards earlier? Like, why are we piecemealing this little bits at a time? Because we didn't play ahead. Because in good Canadian fashion, but also broadly a number of the NATO member countries, uh, the initial sort of reaction was, let's send light defensive weapons so the Ukrainians can repel the initial Russian advance. Uh, The... What we should have seen coming is that the campaign in the East, in the Donbass, was always going to be a campaign that requires layered defense. So that is to say, you need long range, uh, medium range and short range artillery capabilities. Um, and the Ukrainians will likely also need some air component in order to be successful. The Ukrainians have lots of short range defensive capabilities, uh, but they're lacking in medium and long range. And pieces like the M777 are particularly interesting because 
you can um, uh, the ordinance can be uh, conventional ordinance, but you can also uh, use it with laser guided ordinance that is extremely precise. Uh, it's also extremely costly. It costs it fifty thousand dollars a shot, um, but uh, there's a lot of flexibility that this would offer. And it's training people up on artillery pieces isn't that difficult. But yeah, as you point out. Um, uh, there's uh, or it's it's relatively not as difficult as training them up on some other much more complicated complex um, uh, equipment. But as you, as you point out here, is unfortunately NATO did not pay ahead, and now it's a lot more challenging to get it in because the Russians are actively targeting the NATO supply lines uh, that are running through Ukraine from Poland, Slovakia, and Romania. That's my next question, Christian. Is this stuff hard to transport from point A to point B? Well, yes and no, in the sense, I mean, you hook it up to a truck or you put it on a train. Uh, but of course, uh, it's not like these come a dime a dozen. So, for instance, the yeah. U.S. has provided 7,000 Javelin missiles. That's about a third of the U.S. stock. And it will take about four years to uh, to backfill that stock. So, uh, so, so these are things that you can backfill, but you can't backfill immediately. So Canada needs to think carefully, might we actually need these artillery batteries, for instance, to, um, uh, to deter the Russians uh, on, the Ukrainian, uh, on the Ukrainian periphery? And uh, what are we going to do to try to obtain uh, equivalent new equipment for the Canadian armed forces? Uh, so there's a lot of calculations that feed into um, uh, how, which equipment you send, how you train up the Ukrainians to use it, to use it effectively, um, and how you can make sure that the Ukrainians will exercise restraint. Because one of the things that we want to avoid is the Ukrainians using, for instance, Canadian-provided assets to target Russian territory. Uh, Christian Leprac with us, Royal Military College of Canada, Queens, and, of course, uh, uh, McDonald laurier Institute talking about now uh, sending heavy artillery to the Ukraine. Will it be enough? Christian, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Many talking about the delays uh, involving Sunwing and hundreds, thousands of people who have been affected uh, by the uh, the outage, uh, which obviously prevents them from uh, putting people on and off of airplanes, uh, having to do that manually like they did in the old days. And by that, I mean writing it out uh, on paper and such. Uh, and many are surprised to see that this is still being a problem uh, even days after the event. Uh, that a cyber attack could hold a, a cyber attack could hold a company uh, hostage for this long. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, and is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sitting in an airport waiting for my flight, so I'm doing okay. You know, oh man, I'm watching of the news in countless locations. Scary yeah, stuff. I'm watching the news the other night, and like, you know, there's a bride and groom there. She's got her wedding dress, and you can imagine what the stress of that is, knowing not knowing when your flight's going to take off. Uh, are you surprised it's taking so long to correct this? What are you learning? What are you What are you finding out about this? 
Yeah, you know, when it first presented itself on Sunday, when we started hearing reports, uh, you know, they, they, they painted it as an outage. Uh, and normally that's, it, it sort of starts and ends there. It takes a few hours for things to get cleared up, systems brought back up, they clear the backlog and everyone goes on their way. Uh, you know, when United Airlines, American Airlines, Southwest over the last year, they've all had outages that lasted a few hours, affected a you know, certain number of passengers and flights, and then they recovered. Uh, and then it went on for another day and another day and now we're into day four uh, and then finally the ceo of the airline mark williams says you know somewhat casually in an interview that oh it's uh it's our third party reservation you know boarding system provider uh, and uh, they were hacked they've suffered a breach and then he just goes on and he doesn't share any additional details about that and so normally when when you know outages don't take that long to resolve one uh two uh, companies usually communicate a lot better when it's just an outage. In this case, because they're probably wrestling with a cybersecurity event in the background, they're probably being very careful about what they do and do not share. And so obviously there's a lot going on that you and I are not privy to. We're not being you know, explained to. And unfortunately, passengers fall into that category as well. So this is as bad as it gets. And it really does illustrate what happens when a company doesn't sufficiently prepare for uh, a cybersecurity event uh, and the costs that they pay afterward because they didn't invest enough up, enough up front? So why not mention it's, and even though it is a third-party provider, it's not Sunwing that does its own reservation system, why not mention that it's, it's a ransomware attack and at least giving people some sort of um, transparency, some sort of depth? I mean, does that change the discussion? Uh, it certainly would, because at least it would provide details to passengers and other stakeholders and allow them to you know, govern themselves accordingly, decide if they want to wait at the airport if they'll, or if they'll just go home and wait it out there. Uh, mm. Or if you know they're far away from home, if they should try to find another airline uh, to get them home, if it's going to take days. If you had known on Sunday that it was going to take four days to clear this backlog, would right. you have stayed at the airport or would you have gone to plan B? And so on the one hand, from a convenience and a customer service perspective, yes, they should have shared that. But from a, a corporate perspective, no one has ever ever wants to admit that they were hit by a ransomware attack. It is, it's a pretty embarrassing thing to admit, and it has some very serious business implications. And I'm absolutely certain that uh, that Sunwing does not want that on its on its brand, on its reputation. And that's why the CEO made it very clear. It wasn't us, it was our third party provider, you know, a contractor. It's not our company. Now at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. If I'm a Sunwing no. customer, I don't care who the third party is, get me home, you know, whatever it takes. But, you know, this is the way they're, they decided to play the game. They're laying the blame game at someone else's feet, uh, even though operationally it makes no difference to their customers. So where does this leave the third-party supplier? I mean, um, will we hear from them? Uh, where does it leave the relationship with them and the airline? Kind of surprised that we haven't heard anything from them. So it's an organization that's airline choice. We know that uh, they are the only, uh, they don't provide these services to any other Canadian airline. That's why Sunwing is the only airline that's uh, that we have heard it is having these issues. Uh, and I am kind of surprised that they haven't gone public. I'm surprised that they haven't shared their own perspective that they're allowing Sunwing uh, to essentially tell their story. Uh, you know, in, in the case of a cybersecurity event, best practice is always to tell what you can, when you can, or as you can. 
uh, and to be as 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 transparent as you possibly can be, especially in a in an event like this, which can be a brand killer. I mean, I I would imagine that something like this is going to dog Sunwing for a very long time. I already know anecdotally so many people who have basically said, well, when I do get back to flying. It isn't going to be with Sun Wing because I don't want to be left in this position. Uh, this is absolutely, th this could lead to the destruction of the company if they don't address it. And you certainly don't address it by going silent. Um, would they be going silent because of safety concerns, you know, separating themselves from the third party supplier? In other words, the planes haven't been hacked. It's the reservation system. So everything's safe here. It's certainly possible, although, but, and, and, and that, that, that's kind of what I originally thought. But then the CEO went further saying that, you know, and, and I'll quote him here, there's a lot of interest from Transport Canada and the FAA to understand what's happened and that they don't want to bring the system back online until they've, they're assured that it's safe to do so. So, you know, on the one hand, by saying it's the third party, it, you almost, you know, now they're once removed, but at the same time, now you're using safety regulations and regulatory agencies like the FAA and Transport Canada as an excuse for why it's taking so long. So uh, they're trying to play both sides of the fence, but if I were a passenger, I wouldn't be buying either argument. They both just don't smell right to me. So have they fixed this issue or are they just making do with what they have now? It looks like, and, and again, just from what we're hearing as of this afternoon, they're still doing the paper thing at Pearson as well yeah. as in Cancun and other locations. Uh, I know that flights from, from Cuba are also being affected. Um, so, you know, to the best of my knowledge, it seems like it has not been resolved, that the system has not been brought back up uh, and they're not in a position to start chewing through that backlog that they've, uh, they've built up over the last four days. And so uh, for a major line of business system like this to be down for four days, uh, for whatever reason, especially for ransomware is, extraordinary uh and and I, I suspect that we'll be studying this case study for a very long time of what not to do when you are breached when you suffer when you're a victim of a cyber attack i only got a few seconds left here carmy lessons learned what about other airlines uh, other airlines should be looking at this and talking to their providers all of their contractors the it companies that provide services like this and say are we investing enough to prevent the next Sunwing. What are we doing to ensure that when we are attacked, because every airline will be attacked, that's just a given in this day and age, uh, that you're prepared for it, it's part of your disaster recovery plan, your business continuity plan, and that your people have been properly trained up so they know exactly what to do. Obviously with Sunwing, those conversations didn't happen, that training didn't happen. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about the cyber attack behind the delays at Sunwing that are still going on. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In case you weren't aware or maybe not interested, or and I'm surprised, frankly, that people are this far out, uh, but the Conservative uh, Party is searching for a new leader because that's what they do every couple of years. <laughs> if they don't win, they boot one out. I, I guess this will be the third in five years once uh, uh, they elect a leader coming up in uh, September now. Uh, and, and again, I'm surprised that people are this interested in uh, a race within a political party as opposed to an actual campaign this far out, but it seems to be getting uh, a lot of attraction. I'm not sure who that's good for, one candidate or the other, or if it's good or bad for the party or what. But let's bring in Sean's, uh, Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. 
Uh, first, Sean, are you surprised that we're this interested in a uh, political race that's five or six months out? Well, I mean, Trudeau's been prime minister for a while now. Uh, it's been three election cycles. His approval ratings are, you know, not great. Um, and uh, you think to deal with the NDP to avoid an election for the time being, but... If he wins another mandate, well, let's just say I think the odds are against him to win another mandate, given how long he's been around. Therefore, uh, the next prime minister, uh, aside from someone who takes over from him, the Liberal Party, is likely whomever the Conservatives choose. So, I mean, it stands to reason that people are curious about who that person might be. So does this necessarily signal that Canadians are looking for a change? Well, we know from our polling that uh, many Canadians, a majority of Canadians, are, are, are looking for a change at the, at the federal level. Uh, they didn't find that alternative in uh, Mr. O'Toole. And uh, as you said, the Conservatives tossed him out because that's what they do. Uh, and now they're looking for another leader. Now, among the 11 people that we tested, um, nine of them, uh, a majority of Canadians, don't know enough about them to, to you know, say whether they like them or not one way or the other. Uh, so that leaves sort of two emerging uh, front runners, uh, just by virtue of the fact that they're better well-known, uh, and that is, of course, uh, Monsieur Jean Charest uh, and um, Pierre Poiliev. Uh, now, of course, the general population doesn't vote. It's only Conservative Party members who vote. But even among those people in our, our most recent poll who say that they would vote Conservative in the next election... Uh, a majority don't know who all these other people are, with the exception of those two gentlemen. So it's those two, uh, and even more so, Polyev's race to you uh, to lose. Many have said Charest's the more center candidate that can uh, do well for the party in a national election, whereas Polyev's the guy that can win uh, the party. Uh, what's your interpretation of all of that? Because uh, even though that sounds like these two leaders are relatively close, Polyev is still quite a ways out in front. Yeah, well, when we crowdsource it with Canadians saying, who do you think is going to win? They, they believe that Poiliev is, 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 is the person who, who, who has a, a better shot. It's not the person they necessarily want to win. They just think that he's got the better shot at it. Now, Conservative Party members have, have a it's clear choice. If, if, if it's these two front runners we're talking about for now. Um, on the one hand, they have a person in Mr. Poiliev who, who can unite the party. He is seen very favorably, uh, among Conservative Party voters and, and, and even more so among, among members, but uh, is not very attractive to people outside of the party. So even though he can unify the party, uh, he may have a hard time growing the tent, which is what you need to do to win a general election. On the other hand, you've got Jean Charest, uh, who uh, is actually looked upon uh, by Conservative voters in a much less favorable light. In fact, it's net unfavorable towards Jean Charest. But when you look outside of the party, opinions of him are actually pretty good. In fact, he's seen quite favorably among liberal voters. So he would probably have a better chance at winning a general election. The problem is, of course, is when you have conservative leaders who move a little bit too far to the center, the right wing of the party starts to get a bit antsy and threatens to leave. So, uh, you know, you might be able to win an election, but you may lose, you know, many mm. of your party members as a, as a result of if, if there's another splinter within the conservative ranks. Uh, and uh, when the right is divided, it means perpetual victories for the liberals. Uh, many have said that, you know, the conservatives need to appeal to a broader base, need to appeal to a younger audience. Polyev certainly seems to be drawing those younger crowds. What does that say? 
yeah, he, he does seem to be drawing those, uh, uh, the younger crowds. I think that uh, uh, it's actually quite remarkable. I, I was, I was uh, speaking with David Aiken this morning, and he said he, he can't believe that you know, these people are hmm. showing up you know, in the city of Toronto, hundreds if not thousands of people to, to the rally. So clearly he's got a good ground game, and I think that's something that uh, you know, Jean Charest might be, might be lacking a little bit. He was a little bit later to end, enter the race. Uh, clearly, he's got uh, more experience within Quebec, where he served as premier for almost 10 years, but Quebecers are net unfavorable towards him as well. So hmm. um, if, if we look at other candidates like Patrick Brown, you know, he will have a machinery, but it's really only in Ontario and the base of the party is further west. So it's it's hard to see, you know, how he will be able to match uh, Poiliev's uh, ground game and, and strength as well. I'm not saying it's a runaway. You know, these things are, are weird, the way that, that, you know, the preferential ballots and votes get redistributed. Um, so you never quite know what's going to happen. But for the time being, uh, it, it definitely looks like uh, Poiliev's to lose. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about our interest in the conservative leadership race and who could win the party, but can they win the country? Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. All right, we certainly uh, have known about inflation, and as we get to the latter part of this global pandemic, hopefully uh, we are starting to see the economy uh, start to take off again and and inflation uh, rear its ugly head as a result of that interest rates uh, starting to go up. Uh, currently announced uh, today, 6.7% is the inflation rate for March. Uh, that's the highest in 31 years. To talk more, Ian Lee is with us, Associate Professor Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and here now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you, Scott. How concerned are you uh, with a 6.7% inflation rate, especially when we hear it's the highest in 31 years? Well, everyone should be concerned. I mean, for me personally, it's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra famously said. I started at a very young age, 18, 19. I joined the labor market in 1972. And all through the 70s, the inflation ratcheted up year by year. And it started out very, very low, by the way. It was down at 2 or 3%. Then it went to 4 Then it went to 6 Then it went to 7 Then it went to 8 And this was all through the 70s. And then it went double digits. And then the interest rates started to go up. And I was at the bank as a mortgage manager, and interest rates peaked at 20% in 1980. I want to err, caution your viewers, I'm not your listeners, I'm not suggesting we're going to see the rates go to 20%. I don't believe that. I don't think anyone believes that. But they're going to go up significantly higher than what they are now. Um, I mean, the Bank of Canada has said so, essentially. And and um, it's it's because of the inflation, and it's the, one of the most important tools for fighting inflation, for uh, ringing it back down, bringing it back down into line, unfortunately, is, is interest, macroeconomic interest rates. And for people who say, I don't understand this because it makes my cost more expensive and that makes that more inflationary, Interest rates going up are de-inflationary because they take money out of your pocket, out of everybody's pocket, including every mm. business in the country that has an operating line of credit for their business or their nonprofit association uh, or for their hospital or for the university. And so if you have less money uh, in your pocket to spend discretionary money because you're now paying out more on interest, then you have less to chase after those scarce goods because the economy is running at full capacity. And this is how interest rates paradoxically cool down demand, cool down the economy. And it's been done many times in many different countries, and it works. But it's painful. It hurts. 
Many for the last 20 years, we've been talking about low interest rates. And I remember many years ago, uh, it was only temporary and everyone was trying to figure out when they would jump. And then they didn't. And then that, that, that sort of became the new norm. Uh, they were starting to go up prior to the pandemic. And then also, obviously, as relief, uh, they came back down. Uh, the fact that they have been traditionally low for so long, how, what are the repercussions of that going to be as this pain comes? Uh, I think it's going to be psychological. Uh, I'm not predicting doom and gloom and, you know, apocalypse now and Canada is going to collapse into depression. I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Um, uh, there's incredible resilience in Canada. We're the 10th largest economy on planet Earth. We have a very diversified economy. It's a very deep economy, highly skilled economy. That doesn't mean that we get hurt. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get whacked on the side of our head. And, and I, I, one other point, Scott, I don't want to again make this as a, it's an all bad news story. Um, the, the, it's important for the media and the journalists to understand this is a very good news story and a very bad news story. How impossibly could it be a good news story? Anybody who is not a borrower, who is a saver, who has money in GICs, in, in bonds, in, in any kind of investment, typically older people, yes, because, you know, the life cycle, you, you go into debt when you're young and you build up your assets, et cetera, as you get older, and, and then you switch from being a debtor to a saver. But if you are a saver, and there's lots of people that have saved money, there's lots of people with money in their bank accounts, well, they're going to earn higher rates on their GICs, TDRs, whatever you want to call them. So the savers across the country are going to win. And by the way, 43, 45% of all homeowners in Canada, according to StatScan, are mortgage they don't have any mortgage at all. So if they're the winners, who are the losers? Well, people that owe money. And that includes just about every business in the country because they have revolving lines of credit that are variable rate. And I mean by that prime plus one, prime plus two. So when the prime goes up, their cost of borrowing goes up. And those with variable rate mortgages, and I just checked the figure the other day and I was shocked. It's something like 55% of all the mortgage of those that do have a mortgage are on a variable rate, which means as rates goes up, their rate will go up. So that's going to be the shock to many Canadians who have been used for so long to these incredible low rates. And they're, they're gone. I'm just telling everybody, those low rates of the last 5, 10, 15 years, they're now in the rearview mirror of history. They're going to hmm. disappear. Where do you see this settling down? In a year, two years, three years? You've asked, I think, the single most important question, and I'll explain why. And I'm going to compliment the Bank of Canada and, and criticize the finance ministry at the same time. Um, for the last, uh, I would say, since April 21, that's last year's budget, um, we've been running a, a monetary policy and a fiscal policy that was far too loose. In plain English, we were pumping way too much stimulus into the economy. For those who say, wait a minute, what about the, you know, the COVID? Well, when you compare us to other wealthy countries, including progressive wealthy countries like Germany and France and UK, we were way stimulating, way more than they were as a percentage of GDP. So we're comparing apples to apples. And, and so now what's happened, the Bank of Canada has realized, I think, its mistake, and it's saying, you know, we're going to correct this. And I watched the speech and read the text of the governor, and he said, we, uh, we're still below the neutral rate of interest in the economy. The neutral rate is where the interest rate is neither stimulating the economy nor contracting the economy. Well, the neutral rate, he said, is between 2 and 3% central bank rate, but we're at 1. 
That means we're still stimulating the economy with monetary policy, and mm. we're still pumping $50 billion of fiscal spending. And for any of your listeners who say, oh, it's just those right-wing conservatives that hate debt, that's not my point. That's not my point. My point is we're pouring gasoline on the barbecue fire because the economy is at full capacity. It's, it can't produce more than it's producing, and the Bank of Canada has the data to show that. So by stimulating, you can't make the economy grow. It's at its outer edge right now. And so all we're doing is stimulating inflation. And this is the mistake, in my view, that the Bank of Can- the government of, of uh, Canada is doing well, on the fiscal side. Having said that, we're in a situation now where, like my late mother, who I adored, loved incredibly, but in her mid late 80s, she would drive down the car, uh, around the road in her car, very slowly, one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas. That's <laughs> what we're now doing in Canada. The Bank of Canada is putting their foot on the brake. They're going to keep raising interest rates throughout this year. But the fiscal side, the, uh, the Minister of Finance, is still stimulating the economy. So we got one foot on the brake in Ottawa and one foot on the gas. That means interest rates are going to go up higher, at least 2% this year by the end of the year, maybe 25 and they're going to go up again in 2023. So I would not be shocked to see a central bank prime rate of 3 or 4% by the end, of, by middle of 2023. And to remind everybody, the chartered bank prime rate is above the central bank. So what this means in plain English is you're going to be paying a lot more for your car loan and a lot more for your operating line of credit and a lot more for your mortgages. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about inflation sitting at 6.7% now. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Those of us that are old enough to uh, have had parents or grandparents in World War II and know a little bit about the history uh, would know the phrase never again. Of course, after uh, what happened during and the atrocities of World War II, uh, NATO uh, and countries coming together so this would never happen again. However, in a fascinating interview with CNN's Jake Tapper, uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky said he doesn't believe the never again promise from the world. And Robin Urbeck, uh, current affairs columnist with The Globe and Mail, has written a fabulous column on this titled, uh, of course, never again is an empty slogan. Vladimir Putin knows it. To talk more about all of this, Robin Urbeck with his current affairs columnist with The Globe and, Nail, uh, Globe and Mail and with us now. Robin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So we've watched, Robin, over the last, uh, what is it now, 56 days, This horrific, uh, these horrific images coming out of Ukraine, these remarkable, heroic people that are standing up and fighting for their own uh, country, civilians in the streets in many situations. Um, and obviously we saw Russia uh, retreat, sort of reload, regroup, as this has become a lot more difficult than what they thought, and now seem to be concentrating on the eastern regions, Donbass region, Region and such is the world content to let the, these regions fall as long as that's as far as they go because you know we're sending lots of stuff but i don't know if canadians or the rest of the world's feeling any better about this um are we content with letting what's left fall i think so unfortunately i mean we let Russia annex Crimea in 2014. And that's not the beginning and end of what Russia under Putin has done. I mean, the, what's so fascinating in a sort of dark and horrific way is the way 
that the tactics that are being deployed by Russian troops um, in this war is so reminiscent of the other tactics that have been used by Russian troops um, as long as as uh, Putin has been president of Russia. I mean, there was the invasion of Chechnya in 1999. And what happened there, specifically in the city of Grozny, was basically what we've seen happen in Mariupol now, um, that, that eastern really strategic city on the, the edge of Ukraine. And that is basically cutting off the infrastructure so that there's no way in and out, there's no way to get messages out, there's no way to get food. And what happens is the civilian population is so worn down physically and emotionally mm. that it just sort of surrenders. I mean, we've heard these horrible stories from Mariupol about people draining their radiators so that they have something to drink. Um, that's not new for the Russians. I mean, it's it's a mirror image of what happened in 1999. And there's other things, too. I mean, bombing of humanitarian corridors, which is something that we've witnessed, I think, to, to our horror happening this time. So Russia and Ukraine agree that, OK, this this space will be safe for civilians to try and flee. And then Russia comes out and starts shelling the region. Well, the same thing happened in Syria when um, Syrian forces and Russian forces would agree to sort of these humanitarian corridors that people could leave. Um, and then they would start bombing and shelling. Um, so there's really that, that familiarity to the tactics that we're seeing uh, the Russian troops use in this war um, Putin's done it before. He's gotten away with it. I think this time around, obviously, the scale of what he's done is so enormous that the response has been much bigger than it's been previously for all the other things that Putin has done as long as he's been president. But I don't think that we're going to cross that line into more meaningful intervention. We're going to keep slapping on sanctions and we're going to keep sending um, military aid to the Ukrainians, which of course is appreciated. But it's it's not going to stop Russia. And I think if those regions fall to Russia, there'll be more sanctions and more international condemnations. But I think by and large, the world is going to let it happen. So we obviously know why we can't do this. Uh, Ukraine, not a NATO member. Therefore, as soon as NATO members, including American military personnel, planes, whatever, fly over that border, uh, it's not a NATO country that's pitting the U.S. against Russia and theoretically starting World War III. Uh, we all remember, and those that, that talk about World War II, they saw Hitler doing the same thing, marching across Europe. Has this already started, or is does a decision have to be made by the rest of the world to go in and potentially start this? A decision has to be made. And frankly, I don't see it being made. Um, and it's it, there's no simple solution to something like this, right? Like, no. and you were right in saying that the real danger is starting World War III. So on the one hand, we think like there are these horrific actions being taken. I think we were all just dumbfounded when we saw, for example, that that theater that was being used as a, mm. a shelter for civilians. in I think that was Mariupol also that was destroyed by Russian forces. And it had the word children written outside in Russian. Yeah. And I think our reaction over in the West and elsewhere was thinking like, oh, my God, how do we just stand by idly and, and watch this happen? But in the same vein, we have geographic 
divisions for a reason and we have NATO agreements that start and stop at certain borders for a reason. And it seems so arbitrary in a sense to say like, okay, well, if, if one of the Russian shells happens to fall into Poland, then we'll react. But if mm. it doesn't, then okay, we're just going to watch. Um, but at the same time, if we didn't have those sort of restrictions, we'd be pulled into any and every war. So it's a tough thing to justify, right? Like, why, why do we have these arbitrary lines? But at the same time, if we didn't have the arbitrary lines, we'd be called in to respond wherever atrocities are happening. And unfortunately, they happen all over the world every day. So it's a really tough thing, I think, to reconcile just in our heads that we have this responsibility to protect, but we will only protect when it makes strategic, military, economic sense. Uh, Justin Trudeau announcing more heavy artillery coming from Canada, the U.S. doing the same. Uh, but this is day 56. Why weren't they doing this in day five? Why do you not deliver the whole nine yards right away? I mean, it's not like you couldn't anticipate this was going to happen. It's a good question. I think part of it is that I don't think anyone really expected that we'd be here at day whatever it is, 57, 8. 56, so. yeah, 7, yep. 56, right. So we thought that this would be over and done with, which I guess means that we wouldn't need to send in all this extra heavy artillery because Russia would just sort of capture Kiev and we talk about what to do with Russia afterwards, but it would be over and done with. We didn't sort of anticipate that the Ukrainians would would mount such a strong defense, frankly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that their president actually stuck around. And there's interesting mm. reporting, too, that his messages to the EU were really instrumental in getting additional supplies and military support and sanctions being levied. Because on a really personal level, I think EU members saw that this guy was willing to risk his own life to defend a country that Russia said isn't real and doesn't really exist. Um, so it, it, it may really be just a logistical type of thing that we didn't think we needed to have all these supplies in place because we just frankly didn't believe that the war would go on as long as it has. Hmm. Robin Urbach with us, current affairs columnist with the Globe and Mail. Her latest, uh, of course, never again is an empty slogan. Vladimir Putin knows it. Fascinating read, uh, Robin. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Scott Radley is uh, with us for the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I uh, Look, I was listening to that song thinking they're probably playing that right now at the Netflix head offices today. Yeah, yeah, yep. No I doubt. hope anyone listening does not have too much stock in Netflix. Down I don't know. I'm, percent today. I know. I just hope that... I just hope I get to see the last seven episodes of Ozark before the whole thing goes dark. I just don't, don't leave me hanging like this. I need those last seven episodes, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they're, uh, they're listening. They're listening. They'll say, we got to keep going. Just keep Scott, his episodes, and then we'll, then we're going out. Uh, so, yeah. So yesterday we're talking about, uh, the handgun ban that, uh, that the liberals introduced as part of their election platform for June. And I understand you have the leader on tonight. Uh, Stephen Del Duca is going to come on, and we're going to talk a little bit about this because, you know, I think it's one of those things that um, there should be some sort of explanation. Of some sort of accountability? This, well, an explanation of how this will be done and how this will solve the problem. And I, I trust that, you know, he and the party have thought through this and that there will be good answers. But, I mean, the big, I think the big question that most people are going to have is, 
if you ban handguns, you're probably mostly banning the legal guns that people have. But is this a solution to the flood of illegal handguns? And what do we do about those? And listen, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I certainly trust that if you're going to make this part of the election platform, there is there is an answer to that. And I look forward to hearing it. Uh, yeah, me too. Um, or it could be that you're just in third place and you got to try to make some headlines and get on radio shows and such. Because it was just last week that Andrea Horvath was talking about how people should be voting strategic in order to beat the Doug Ford conservatives, which you only do that if you're in a losing scenario. And, you know, um, you know, I, I think both the liberals and, and the NDP are sort of at the same place. You know, you and I talked about a week or two ago about something, and it struck me that this particular thing um, falls into the category of something that we chatted about, and that is, you know, th- there is a commonly used phrase that is generally attached to conservatives or those on the right, Republicans, whomever, and that is that they are populist. That they, yes. They, they choose populist issues, and it kind of suggests a level of, it's not real, or it's not credible, or it's... And it's only on the right. It's never yeah, on the it, left. It usually is. You rarely hear it on the left. I think that banning handguns is an amazingly populist idea. <laughs> of course this is, it is. This, is. this is the kind of thing that, that is exactly a populist idea. And I'm, yep. uh, we're not gonna, I'm not going to ask Stephen Del Duca. It's not his issue. But uh, for other people, I would say, so why is this not being referred to as a populist idea? when that's exactly mm-hmm. what... It is something that is popular with the people, that is one of those issues that we, you know, it may or may not be something that really is the most important thing on the agenda. This is exactly the definition of a populist idea. We never hear that word used in this case. Nope. I agree 100%. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, I have a hard time talking about this now because it's just still early. The campaign is, uh, you know, is still a ways away. It's like the conservative leadership. It's not till September and, and everybody, you know, is, is talking about this. And I think, and I've said this, I said this right at the very beginning of the pandemic when we started to see all of the political leaders work together. This is like during the first wave. And I remember saying that, you know, there is absolutely zero zero that opposition politicians can do right now because governments have everyone's attention so people like del duca and andrea horbath should be doing absolutely zero on trying to fix this problem because there's absolutely nothing they can do and instead they should have been spending the last two years working on their image, making themselves more presentable, making themselves seem like the nice guy, making themselves seem like they're the person who's reaching out across the aisle. And instead, you know, everybody just sort of settled down for a bit until there was some sort of loose thread, and then they all pulled at it. And I think that's the last thing that people wanted. Let me me just say one thing on that, because I, I have had Stephen Del Duca on my show a number of times. His people have made him available to do that very thing. I, I think that he has he has attempted to do that far more than Andrea Horvath. I think Andrea Horvath, quite honestly, and I've heard this from a number of people, has gained the reputation even more during this pandemic as the person on the sidelines just screaming every time something is done, just screaming yeah. the opposite. And, and you either are fully on board with that approach, 
or she has become just sort of the angry voice in the wilderness who just, if the, if Doug Ford says the sky is blue, she'll say, no, the sky is yellow. And if yeah. he says the grass is green, she'll say, no, it's red. And it becomes this thing where I don't know, to your point, I think I, I do believe that Stephen Del Duca has worked with this. I don't know how successful he's been, but I think Andrea Horvath, I'd be very surprised if when this whole thing comes to the polls, that she has grown her audience very much because those who like that and hate Doug Ford, they were already there. And those you know, who don't I, like it, they've all they've tuned her out because it's always just the opposite. You know, the the issue that stands out for me is, and they were both doing it, both Del Duca and Horbath, and it was check the freezer, Doug, check the freezer, Doug, and there was this some sort of illusion because vaccines were only coming in like once a month that all these uh, vaccines were sitting there going bad and they couldn't be part of the supply chain uh, that, that Hillier, uh, Hillier was working on. And I had to have like two weeks of supply chain professors and managers and know anything about supply chains and keeping them running to explain it it was just a pile of hogwash and i mean at that point i just thought really like come on we're trying to get through this so here's the question and i know you got to run when andrea horvath does not win as premier and i would put i'm not a betting man but i'm willing to make a bet with someone that she will not win this time yeah when she doesn't win four months later five months later whatever it is does she run for mayor of hamilton Interesting point. All right. The discussion will continue on the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news, and Stephen Del Duca is going to be joining him. Scott Radley coming up, columnist for the Hamilton Spectator, and after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. See you. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.